This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. My guest today is Christopher Caldwell. He has long been a part of the nation's public conversation, a public intellectual and author and writer. He was known for many years as a writer for the Weekly Standard. He's also written as a columnist for the Financial Times of London. His articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and a myriad of other publications. In 2010, he wrote a major book entitled Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam, and the West. His most recent book and the topic of our conversation today is The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. And that's actually the topic of our conversation today, not only the book, but what it means to look at American history from the 60s to the present. Since the 60s opens well, an entire avenue of conversation. And that's why I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Christopher Caldwell, welcome to Thinking in Public. Christopher, you have really uh, been in the nation's uh, intellectual conversation for a matter of decades now at the Weekly Standard and, uh, and elsewhere, uh, the Financial Times of London and uh, Claremont Review, uh, places such as that. And uh your most recent book, The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, has uh, engendered a good deal of conversation. And, and that's why an author writes a book. Tell me the conversation that you wanted to bring about by the publication of this book. Well, that's a, that's a very confusing way into it. I, I'm not sure I do necessarily want to start a conversation when I write a book. What I, yeah. what I usually try to do when I write a book is to figure out is to figure something out in my own mind. And uh, once I have it figured out, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty content whether the con conversation starts a lot, although I don't deny that this has started a kind of a conversation. Well, I'm, I'm going to stick with my point for just a moment. Uh, you, uh, a book's a public argument, and uh, you intended to make a public argument. And uh, I'm sure you intended there to be some effect to your argument, and, uh, and that's the same, I, I assume that has something to do with why you write your columns and, and why you serve for so long at the Weekly Standard. Yeah. Uh, a part of what I try to do is to, uh, to help thinking Christians uh, think through these arguments and, yeah. uh, and understand uh, what they are, where they come from, what they mean, and, uh, and where they lead as ideas and arguments yeah. have consequences. Yeah. Well, the book is, you know, the book has arguments mm -hmm. in it. But I think of the book as as uh, more of a narrative than an argument. It yeah. is a it's a history. It's it's not a manifesto. It's a it's a story of of the United States between uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy mm -hmm. and the election of Donald Trump, and um, that's a very kind of special period. I would say yeah. if you had to call it the age of something, you might call it the age of the baby boom. Um, because it begins just as the baby boomers are all born. And once they're born, they constitute 38% of the population of the country. And once they get older, that is in the, in the first Reagan administration, then yeah. they, they constitute considerably more of the electorate and, and, and even more than that of the possessors of disposable income. And then it runs down to the age of Trump, which I think is when the 
baby boom politics kind of runs out of gas and you begin to see new politics on the horizon for good or ill. Yeah, I uh, was born in 1959. So the Kennedy assassination came when I was I was barely four years old. And so the span of your book is just about precisely my my lifetime and uh, my own intellectual awakening, my own uh, understanding of political identity, all of that forged in the uh, in the context of, of what you write about in this book. And uh, you, the title could have been many things, an age of, uh, you know, I, yeah, I kind yeah, of yeah. think of Will I had, and- I had my own my own preferences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but entitlement works as a way of at least getting into the conversation. But I, I want to get to the key kind of spinal column of, of, of your book, which is that, uh, that there are really two Americas in the sense of two cultures, each driven by an interpretation of the Constitution- Right. And uh, thus two constitutional regimes, one under some continuity, explicit intentional continuity with the Constitution of the United States, uh, and another that uh, you really date specifically to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its aftermath. Spell that right. out for us. Yeah. Right. And if if I had had my druthers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm, I might have called this book the two constitutions. You are right to see. You are right to see that as the as the spinal column of the book. Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, is a very hard thing to. It's a very complex topic. It's hard to grasp even when you start talking about it. For one thing, it was presented to the public as the way to solve a highly specific, um, very local problem. And I, I, I would not even say limited to the South. I would say limited to the, you know, parts of Mississippi and Alabama where there was very serious violence going on, let's say, in the early 60s uh, against the civil rights movement, right? Um, I think that there was a consensus in the public um, that that ought to stop, all right? But there was not so much of a consensus that there was a race problem at all elsewhere in the country. And if you look at the polling, um, if you look at the polling from the early 1960s, you find that about 80% of Americans and overwhelming majorities in the North and the Midwest and on the West Coast believe that that the blacks that they lived among were actually fairly and equally treated. So I think that, that there was a very strong sense that this was a regional problem that was, was being solved. But that in itself doesn't exhaust the ambiguity of, of, of this act because the act is not really limited to race at all. And when people I, I think that the, the people that today we call activists were quite aware of that from the beginning. The civil rights, the civil rights act protects people based on um, you know not just race but gender, religion, immigrant status, ethnic origin, origin, and other groups yeah. have been added: Vietnam veteran status, uh, gay, lesbian, gender identity that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a very, very versatile way of conducting government. Yeah. Now, the way it was supposed to work mm-hmm. to 
desegregate the South is instructive here. The problem, I think, with Southern segregation is that it was a, um, is that it was a product of democracy, that people voted for it and people supported it. So a way had to be found to get around that democracy, to overrule it from Washington. And so Washington got a lot of, a lot of tools. Uh, a lot of behaviors that had been legal um, were declared illegal. The understanding of the First Amendment freedom of assembly to mean freedom of association was withdrawn from our, our usual way of looking at the, the First Amendment. You had a huge investigative apparatus in, in, in Washington, and you had um, the, the activation of courtrooms and bureaucracies to do things like actually retry cases that were right. uh, criminal cases, right. to, 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 um, to, to exert control from Washington over um, elections for the first time since Reconstruction. And there's an answer to this. There's an answer to why this was necessary. People will say, well, it was necessary to go around democracy that way because the South's democracy was a flawed democracy. I, I, um, I get that. I get that, the argument. And, and that is yeah. certainly true. But, but if I may finish, the, yeah. the, the problem was all democracies are flawed democracies. And, and these tools wound up being able to use, be used for almost anything anywhere. Yeah, I would, uh, I, I would take the narrative back to, uh, say, uh, the first decade of the, especially the second decade of the 20th century, with uh, Wilsonian progressivism and the idea that uh, the state at the federal level uh, should be the doer of good uh, to uh, to effect social change. And of course, this led to the progressivist interpretation of the Constitution, the rise of what we would now call an administrative state and all that. Just back to yeah. what Wilson was arguing long before he became president of the United States. When he was a political science professor, he was arguing uh, for this. Uh, now, I, I am the the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a Southern Baptist. I, I am of the South. And, uh, and I want to be ruthlessly honest about the horrors of, uh, of racism and segregation, legal segregation, Jim Crow segregation in the South. But I, I'm not going to let the North off uh, at all. Uh, and when you consider that four years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the cities that had the greatest unrest on racial issues in the United States were not in the South, uh, but were in places like Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and, uh, and Detroit, Chicago. And uh, so it was a national problem. But, uh, but when, when you look at your argument about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it, it, you're not making the argument that the civil rights part was wrong, but that the federal government uh, basically set the precedent of the fact that it was going to overturn and correct what it saw as wrongs brought about by democracy at the state and local level. Uh, well, and yes, and, yeah. and here is where I think it's very important. Here is where I really insist that I am presenting a narrative yeah. rather than an argument, because I am not, I do not believe that I'm relitigating the arguments of the summer of 1964. Yeah. What I think I'm doing in this book mm -hmm. is talking about how this, this act had the seeds of a totally different way of doing politics and right. how it 
how it developed step by step. You know, first of all, with um, Lyndon Johnson's executive order um, uh, regarding, you know, federal federal contracts. Um, you know, the, the, the very rapid expansion of the EEOC, the, the, the addition of different, um, you know, of different civil rights things, re civil rights in residence, uh, 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 civil rights in residential housing, civil rights uh, through affirmative action in both hiring and, and universities, civil rights in, in busing in school. Yeah most of which things were really explicitly warned against during the discussion in 1964 right, yeah. and held to be absolute impossibilities. Yeah. Um, so it's about an evolution and not about the legislation itself. But, you know, in this conversation, we're doing something that is habitual in America and I think unhealthy. And, and that is we're talking about something without defining terms. So, you know, people uh, use I'm the sorry, terms... What? We're talking about civil rights without defining yeah. what we're talking about, because yeah. that, that, that was the problem in 1964, uh, as well as the necessity. You know, there, 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 there was going to be a Civil Rights Act of 1964. The question right. is, what would, it, what, what would it say? The question is, how would civil rights be defined? And they weren't defined. That, that, that as, a, as, a, as a reader of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, I'll say one of the problems is the rights aren't defined. But, but we have this phrase, we have the Civil Rights Movement, we have uh, the Civil Rights Act. But what are civil rights? Yes. What, what does well, the word civil mean before well, rights? Well, I mean, uh, literally, yeah. etymologically, um, they are the rights of citizens. Right. And um, I think the original understanding of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 or 67, I believe, mm -hmm. um, was to convey to our, our black citizens their full rights as as, as citizens right um but it, it became you're right it rapidly became very confusing because the pillar on which the civil rights regime if we can call yeah. it is constructed is the 14th amendment the basis of the 14th amendment is equal citizenship and yet so much in the let's say legal structure that arose out of the civil rights yeah. act is about drawing distinctions between citizens, you know, based on race. And so it's a very confusing matter legally. Yeah, I, what I, um, what I want to help people to understand is that when we talk about civil rights, the civil rights movement was explicitly about, and I say explicitly, that's not to say in every case it was about, but it was explicitly publicly about uh, rightfully demanding that uh, that black citizens in the United States be recognized to be full citizens and that their rights as full citizens be guaranteed. Those rights were enumerated uh, in the Declaration, the, the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, then they were articulated in the federal constitution uh, to include everything in the Bill of Rights. And then in the 14th Amendment, uh, it was also guaranteed that this should include, well, I, I should say the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments together. That that uh, that this would also include the right to property, to the ownership of property, and to the vote, and uh, and and so the, when we talk about civil rights in the 1960s, no one was talking about the supposed right of a man to marry a man. That that was that That's was right. that that was so far off the screen. It's it's not even fair to bring it into the uh, imagination here. Yes, that's that's right. And 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 again, this is this is why I describe the book as a narrative. It's. It's not that 
we've just been arguing about the same law at the you know for the last 55 years it's that the law created an entire new way of doing politics that's why we describe it as a as a second constitution which is often at it, it turns out at at loggerheads with the first yeah, and uh, th- this idea of civil rights, I just want to help to, to kind of play this out to, to help people figure this, uh, figure out what's going on here. Uh, the, the civil rights, the rightness of the, the, the moral urgency of the civil rights movement had to do with very real wrongs uh, that, that had to be addressed. And because the states and, uh, and municipalities were not addressing these grave moral wrongs, the federal government stepped in. But once the federal government stepped in, in that case, uh, it became the uh, the forum and, and the, the lever for everyone who had a cause they wanted to declare as a civil right to use the same coercive force of the federal government. And, and thus we get Roe v. Wade, 1973, uh, which, which isn't genetically from the Civil Rights Act, but intellectually it is. And uh, then, of course, Obergefell, same-sex marriage, all the rest. Yes, it's... It- it's, it's very interesting. So in the beginning, um, you had a, a, a movement um, that was based on writing the United States' great historic wrong. And um, it had, it was given a lot of passion by that, but it was also given a lot of specificity by that. I think that Americans thought that it was, it re- was required by history, but it was also limited by history. And as long as we were talking about you know, making amends for historical mis- misdeeds. You know, there's a lot for Americans to argue about and disagree on, but I think that all Americans understood that. That made a lot of intuitive sense to Americans, whether they liked the Civil Rights Act or not. Right. When you started, but, but you very quickly moved on f- from there. And in fact, by the time you get to 1978, yep. the Supreme Court actually repudiates the idea that this is uh, any kind of restitution or, um, uh, or um, uh, 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 making of amends um, uh, historically. It's about just this ethic of, of diversity. Yeah, and uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is followed very quickly in the next five years by the emergence of a particular form of uh, feminism we call second wave feminism that was energized by the Civil Rights Act and by the inclusion of gender uh, in the, uh, or sex, actually, uh, in, the, uh, in the Civil Rights Act, to, uh, to claim uh, that their own grievances needed to be addressed by the federal government with another wave of coercion that I have to say was, was not only in corporate America and in the military and things like that, but uh, especially effective in higher education. And, uh, and by the way, I think the best line in your book, and uh, you're a good writer, but the best line in your book is when you say Gloria Steinem wasn't fighting to become a member of the Elks Club, but the Metropolitan Club. And, and so there was a class issue here that was really clear as well. Right. And, and you know, I should put, uh, point out that in my book, I do talk about how, uh, you know, the, 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 the civil rights, the racial civil rights element in the Civil Rights Act Inter, is interwoven with other currents that are going on quite independently at the time, uh, like the rise of of feminism, the, the um, you know the the Vietnam War, and certainly the the sort of the class consequences of the way 
uh, of the way um, uh, people were sent to war and, and, um, and of the way people felt about the war right. and that sort of thing. Well, you know, morally speaking, uh, the, the world is filled with injustice and uh, we, we see injustice all over. And, and a part of the American experiment has been uh, the uh, remediation of, uh, of injustice. But, uh, but the, the fact is that at every turn, it seems that when the United States has turned to remediate a, a perceived and rightfully perceived injustice, uh, what follows is, uh, is what is denied at that time as being possible. So, I mean, there were people who warned in 1964 that, uh, that you know, we, we've got to put an end to legal segregation, but this act is actually going to open up endless litigation that will lead to a transformation of society far beyond the issue of race. And, and they turned out to be right, but they were written off as cranks in 1964. Yes. Well, uh, the problem is that you get, you start adding on to the groups that can avail themselves of the, of the civil rights act, right? You add, you add women on um, uh, with, everyone starts to use this alternative means of political empowerment, that is suing rather than legislating. So you now get, you now get legislation, or you now get laws that are really problematic in a couple of ways. One is they're not really laws. They don't have majorities behind them. They don't reflect the folkways of the country. But the other thing is in order to activate these laws, you need a story that you can bring before the court. And the story is one that, that has to, because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, because it's a court case, the story has to have a criminal in it. Mm -hmm. It has to have a villain in it. Um, the civil rights act of 1964 was in the minds of Americans. It was about the, images of, of like the Birmingham fire hoses and Bull, Bull Connor, Connor that they yeah, were seeing yeah. on TV, okay? Mm -hmm. But as things spread out from Southern segregation, the who is the villain that's keeping um, women down? It's the traditional American male. Who is the villain that's keeping gays down? It's heterosexuals. So the 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 act of um, putting this civil rights type of law creation into play gets more and more hostile actually to what, to a larger and larger number of Americans. And you reach the point where, you know, not only Southern blacks, but blacks nationwide can use it. Um, uh, immigrants can use it. Uh, people who's non-English speakers can use it, women can use it, gays can use, use it, transgender people can use it. You basically, by a sort of a process of like a photographic negative, you create this downtrodden, or let's say constitutionally downtrodden minority that is the rural white male, who is the only person who doesn't have access to this new and more powerful set of laws. You know, um, when you talk about the 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 narrative and uh, the Supreme Court or a court decision having to have a, a villain. You know, I think of how that logic kind of crashed on a case like Baki when the Supreme Court said, look, it's not fair that anyone should lose a seat on a medical school, UC Davis in that case, uh, 
in order that someone else can have it. But since there were only, I don't know, let's say 80 slots, if they were saying this person must have it, uh, then some other person will not have it. And, uh, and so since then, it appears to me that the court has increasingly tried to say, um, we're just going to deny the fact that we are creating certain v- victims or, or certain, certain people are going to be denied goods uh, because of our intention to provide them for others. Right. And that is, I mean, that's obviously what affirmative action is. And yet it's, it's really striking how, how hard it is to say that in public. I find the Baki case a really fascinating case uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, that was before the days when we had recognized a particular debt to Vietnam veterans. Alan Baki was really, I mean, he was not just a guy, this was not just like a close judgment call. Alan Baki was an extraordinarily bright guy. He was, and he was um, highly qualified for entering the UC Davis Medical School. I believe his um, his scores were, all of them in the high 90th percentiles, 97, 98, 99th percentile. The average admission, the average person admitted in the minority program that he was complaining about had scores in the 37, third, or the not it wasn't really a close call. What doomed Baki's application or what made it possible to reject him is that the, uh, the, the UC Davis Medical School said he's too old. He was 33. He was really old for a med student. And the reason he was too old is because he'd served a couple of, you know, he'd served two tours in Vietnam with distinction. Okay. So he was a, uh, he was a an honorably discharged Vietnam uh, veteran. That's why he was uh, that's why he was applying to medical school at at 33, and that really counted for nothing. It's a it's a it's a curious difference. But the other the other thing I find really important about about the Baki case is that for just this reason that you describe, they they didn't want to see Baki hurt. The justices didn't want to see Baki hurt, but they didn't want to get rid of affirmative action either. Um, and they had to, they would have had to admit that this was you know that this was was discrimination. So they they reclassified the rationale for affirmative action as diversity, um, and defined diversity as a positive thing, which really is ought to be a matter for discussion. It should not be a matter of law that that this abstract thing diversity is a positive thing, but. But we now are dealing, as you implied earlier, with with very vague words. And so you have a very hazardous thing in a democracy or in in a free society where the people don't really know what the law is. They don't know what they're they're allowed to do and what they're required to do. And and that's a very corrosive thing. Yeah. And uh, that's a part of what has led to the frustration, because you, you, you talked about the narrative beginning with the assassination of President Kennedy and then uh, leading to the election of Donald Trump, uh, trying to understand what happened just on, say, the, the conservative side of the political spectrum during those years. Uh, the, uh, because it, it, was, it was Republicans uh, in the Senate who saw to it that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was, uh, w- was passed. It was Southern Democrats who were opposing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
Well, I mean, it's a it's a complicated thing. I think that more Republicans voted for civil rights proportionately than yes. Democrats, but the but the the party balance in both houses was so lopsided that any achievement, that anything that made it through Congress was going to you know pass with predominantly Democratic votes. Yeah. Now, yes, but uh, but getting it over the line. I mean, it was uh, yeah, it was the Republican Senate leader working with. Uh, uh, President Johnson, who who, yeah. who got it over the line. The the point I want to make is that uh, uh, conservatives in America believed in 1964 that uh, that addressing the race issue was absolutely right, but uh, they didn't know what they were setting loose was uh, a far greater movement that would go far beyond race, and, and even like I say, thanks to the Bostock decision handed down by the Supreme Court a matter of months ago, it, it, it now turns sex into gender as nothing more right. than a social construct. Um, and and uh, so it's a law of unintended consequences here. But the, the, the point that you make in the book, or at least the narrative you're telling, uh, is that uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 basically represents a different way of understanding America's constitutional order. But that leads me to a question. Then, are there any limits at all on this new constitutional order? Is, is there, is there, is, you know, so the, the obvious question is what's next? And, and we're told that's a slippery slope argument, but it, it's not in the sense that there are already movements demanding. And, and one of them, by the way, is, the, is that civil rights, which mean civitas and, and, and citizenship, is now being routinely argued by many, especially in the Democratic Party, that non-citizens are owed full civil rights. Yeah, this is a this is a complicated thing. It's not. I don't think it's just a different way of understanding our constitution. I think that it's an alternative way of organizing a a political hmm. society, and uh, whether by custom um, or uh, through just deference to the Supreme Court or, or or whatever, this new constitution can overrule the old constitution. Um, you know, nobody voted for gay marriage, but right. we have gay marriage. Okay, so we live under this new constitution. It, our old constitution does not have full effect. Now, it is very curious when you consider one of the things I look at in the book. I spent a lot of time on gay marriage in the book. Mm -hmm. One of the very curious things about gay marriage is that. A lot of Republicans, I was in Washington in the 1990s, a lot of Republicans who were tempted to say, well, look at what they're doing in Hawaii. They're talking about marrying, you know, they're talking about men marrying men. We should, we should really pin that on the Democratic Party. And a lot of the, the discussion inside the Republican Party was, no, that's too ridiculous. It'll look like we're just like piling on and we're being like mm. lunatics. And yet, and, you know, 10 years after that, you had it in Massachusetts, and 10 years after that, you had it nationwide. That seemed to be the end. What could you do after that? But now we have transgender. Who knows? Maybe it will be another group. Maybe it will be, you know, um, I, I believe there's a need for a crusade. I think that, that people feel the need for a crusade. But I don't, I'm not so sure it will be a small minority. You know, it might be possible to apply this to apply this model of government to society as a whole. 
you know, to, to sort of begin to, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, l- l- let me just say, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't predict the future. Can't well, I'm, I'm not really a- asking you to, uh, to predict the future, but, but uh, except to the extent it's safe to say there are groups lining up to demand to be next in line. That's not, that's not prediction. That's just fact. There are groups yeah. right now well, lining up well, to it's, be it's, next in line. It's quite natural. It's quite natural because it is a more powerful um, uh, instrument of of for for changing society, and um, it is it has up until now been the last word, you know. Um, so now, as you uh, as you think about the the same sex marriage decision, and the, and you do deal with it at length in your book. Um, you you have uh, kind of the winning argument in this case in the uh, uh, the Obergefell decision it was from of course the majority opinion written by Anthony Kennedy no surprise there uh, going all the way back to Lawrence v uh, Texas and and uh, and Windsor the 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 basic argument that he has used is is what Justice Scalia uh, you know lamented as the uh, oh sweet mystery of life clause you know that everyone gets to yeah. Uh, define their own, you know, meaning of existence. Well, right. you know, as as just a matter of the English language, there is absolutely no end to that paragraph, ever. Yes, I, it's that 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 there's that people have no responsibility to society must accommodate itself to any individual's wish, and that's a you might call it an Achilles heel of 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 American society, and and it, and it's one that has been present present in American society for a very long time. And I I think that it's, uh, you know, an, another example of it is just the litigation that we have in our society. Uh, you know, in terms of our institutions, um, we are free. But we are, any American citizen can be subject to harassment in a courtroom, um, you know, by a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And it tends to happen more and more. So this is a very, this doesn't exist in Europe. It's a very American thing to believe that society must accommodate itself to to your needs. And and, and to every need. And and even, you know, the definition of existence, uh, it reminds me of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that Daniel Patrick Moynihan was the first to say this. He tended to say things extremely well. You know, everyone's entitled to his own opinion, but everyone is not entitled to his own facts. Yeah. And, uh, but when it comes to uh, the Supreme Court, it's basically saying you're entitled to your own moral facts. But that undermines the entire idea of the civitas, talking about civil rights. That, that undermines the entire idea that we are about a common project in which at least there are some basic affirmations that must be shared amongst all American citizens. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's the problem. Now, uh, you, you kind of interestingly uh, entitle your two of your big chapters, winners and losers. And, uh, you know, I think most of us as Americans hate to think in a zero-sum game, and it's not exactly that. But but when you're thinking about the the narrative of the years you're telling, uh, you know, who are the losers in this? Well, I think it's this process that I've been describing to you. I mean, this is a very powerful, um, it turns out to have been an extremely powerful, and in fact, an unanswerable tool if you can show yourself to be a minority of any kind, not just, you know, racial, but, but, but religious or, or, um, uh, or um, 
uh, uh, of ethnic origin or, or gender or whatever who can show himself put upon, let's say. Um, so there's a lot of people, when I talk about winners and losers, I talk about those who won basically from this whole transformation that started in the 60s. So um, the, this worked out very well for um, people who could make such arguments as minorities in, in courtrooms. It turned out very well for um, uh, people who benefited from the prosperity of the last 50 years. Um, most things do work out well for the, the prosperous. But there are, there are people who, there's, this, there's a very, very large class of people um, who are neither, who neither have the standing of minorities in the courtroom, nor the private means to escape from this newly contentious um, uh, political system. And we discovered to our surprise in 2016 that those people may actually be a majority or can constitute enough of the country to elect a president. And that was the perspective from which I was writing this book. Yeah. You know, what's very interesting to me uh, is that uh, the moral urgency of, uh, of racism as as concretized in uh, Jim Crow segregation was a, was a moral wrong the nation had to address. And if, if, if localities and states would not address it, the federal government eventually would address it. But then the federal government would set itself up to be the arbiter of, of these issues uh, ad infinitum. And, and, and so that's just, I, I think you're pretty honest in the book as that being not only something that happened, but something of an inevitability in one sense or another. But the interesting thing is, is that the, the logic of this now is arguably to the detriment of those who brought the righteous cause of the civil rights movement uh, to the nation's conscience in the 1960s. So um, I, I, I think it's a fair argument that many of those who've come thereafter claiming these rights have actually uh, done so at the expense of uh, the uh, African-American citizens of the United States who brought the original cause of civil rights. I think, I think intersectionality, for instance, is a part of critical race theory and all the rest. It, it basically, uh, so in other words, it's, it's, it's not only the white guy in the blue collar job in Milwaukee who has been culturally made a villain in this, uh, even the older civil rights leaders of the 1960s are now being castigated as being, you know, if nothing else, then not appropriately, you know, embracing feminism and the, uh, the, the homosexual movement. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I, I think um, on, on a couple of levels. First of all, you know, I think that the, the pressing emergency that you talk mm -hmm. about in, in, in 1964 was really mm -hmm. to bring um, blacks under Jim Crow the rights of, of citizens. And um, that was the great... That was the great mm -hmm. achievement. I think it's true that 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 they have not always um, benefited from this newly configured society. I mean, you can point to a lot of you know persistence of poverty, a persistence of mm -hmm. crime, and in 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 black neighborhoods, and that's 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 a shame. Um, but I'm not sure that it's it's exactly the thing that that legislation was meant to address. 
On the subject of intersectionality, I really don't think very much of intersectionality as a, you know, intersectionality is this, for our viewers, is the sort of like doctrine that comes up in, 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 in many of these um, uh, university activist classes where people try to figure out whether they're suffering more as a as a as a uh, an ethnic minority uh, a, a a a woman or a um or a, a sexual a person in a yeah. different sexual community um the intersectionality strikes me as very unimpressive as a theory of politics what it really is it strikes to me is a form of coalition building and i have to say it's a it's it's if you're going to wield power in a, in a system that's built on winning rights for minorities, uh, minorities are by definition minorities. And in a democracy, they're going to have to bind themselves together in a very disciplined way if they're not to have their gains, you know, disputed by the majority. That's what I think intersectionality is. And I think it's an absolute necessity to the Democratic Party as it's now uh, uh, as it's now constructed. Yeah, but no, no doubt about that. But I, I want to note carefully that uh, right, even with the issue of race and racism so much on the nation's forefront right now, uh, the intersectionality movement has seen as an ideology, not Movement's not the right word, but as an ideology underlying all of this, it makes it impossible really to deal honestly with a lot of the issues of race, even racial injustice, because now you have to bring in in this coalition you talk about. And and there's a radical distinction between the leadership of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the Black Lives Matter movement uh, of of more recent years. Uh, and uh, one of those distinctions is that, that uh, you can't now just talk about the presenting issue of A or B, everything has to be on the table in order. And and I understand the reality of political coalition yeah. making, but yeah. uh, but morally dealing with these issues has been made much more difficult by uh, intersectionality, uh, which just reduces everything to power. And, and so you can't even deal with truth anymore. Um, well. So that, that that's my yeah. point. Uh, I, I I think this has been to the radical disadvantaging of uh, the actual needs of the African American community, and I I, I I realize that's a controversial argument, and many in the contemporary yeah. civil rights movement would argue with me. Yeah, some 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 would um, some would agree with you. I, I I think that one of the things that you see happening now is uh, uh, I mentioned an attempt to apply some of these principles to all of all of society i mean you look at i think there may be an attempt to sort of intensify the let's say involvement of courts and bureaucracies in a lot of things that we just assumed were normal social life um i think that there is a i think that those who think of themselves as inheritors of the of the civil rights movement, they're not short of of projects to carry out. I think that they think that there's a lot to do, as you know you've you've seen in the last uh, uh, month or two. But I don't I don't think that they are necessarily they I don't think they necessarily feel themselves at odds 
with the people who waged the original civil rights um, struggle. So for instance, if you look at the the homage to John Lewis right. among um, after he died, among the sort of Black Lives Matter marchers and the people who sympathize with them, I think they very much feel like they are in his direct line and his direct heirs. Well, uh, John Lewis lived long enough, unlike many of the other civil rights leaders. He was, after all, the youngest uh, speaker at the March on Washington uh, to uh, to have enthusiastically joined the Democratic Party in its embrace of abortion and gay rights and same-sex marriage and all the rest. But that was not at all true of the older civil rights leadership. And and you still see uh, the fact that uh, on, on, say, the – well, I'm, I'm speaking to you as a Christian theologian. And uh, almost it's not by accident that the main leaders of the civil rights movement in the 1960s were identified as the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the Reverend Ralph yeah. Abernathy. You go, you go down the list. Yeah. Uh, it's a very different, uh, almost explicitly anti-Christian in any cognitive sense uh, movement now. Yeah, and I and I I should make clear that I am not speaking you uh, to you as a theologian, and I am I am I'm mm-hmm. I'm speaking not uh, you know uh, I I'm not making a moral or uh, or a, a, a religious point of any kind. It's more of a a, 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 a point based in in political sociology, and mm-hmm. I I think that if you want to go back to you know to to just to revisit this this issue of how intersectionality grows out out of civil rights. During the um, during the um, uh, uh, the movement for for gay marriage, one thing that was very often discussed was that that black communities tended to poll much more negatively on gay on gay marriage than other right. other communities did. And how were they going to? How were the, these activists, the Democrats, going to square that circle? It was actually a nightmare for them. But actually, in the event, it turned out not to be. And um, the, the political imperative of forming a coalition turned out to be more powerful than the moral misgivings around making such a coalition. Yeah. So here we are in the year 2020, and I'm not asking you to comment directly on the 2020 presidential election, um, but, but, but just in you, you, you end the book basically with the rise of Donald Trump. Um, where, and, but you've been writing as a conservative thinker in the United States for decades. Where, where is the conservative movement now? Where, where is it to be found? Well, you know, I think that was a very easy question to answer under Reagan. And that was the brilliance of Reagan, that he was able to put together yeah. a conservative movement that was very simple. The, um, you know, the conservative movement under Reagan was Christians and capitalists. And um, the two of them came together, even though they didn't always have much in common. Um, the one thing they did have in common was anti-communism, which was really the passion of a very small number of people, but it was something that all Americans kind of vaguely shared. And between those three groups, Christians, capitalists, anti-communists, Americans began to pick up a lot of people from, uh, the Republicans used picked up a lot of people out of what used to be called the the working class. And this became a really invincible Mm -hmm. um, political coalition. For decades. I believe that 
the capitalists, you know, different things happened to different parts of that coalition, okay? First thing that happened was the, um, we won the Cold War. And so anti-communism ceased to be a, it ceased to be a glue that held together the Republican coalition. Second thing that happened is that a lot of people got really rich and capitalists did what they will do, which is go out and pursue their own sort of like hedonistic gratification. Right. And, that, and, and, and they found eventually, if they were rich enough for long enough, they found a much more natural home in the Democratic Party. And if you look at any nice small town in, I, you know, I, I grew up in the Northeast, any of these nice small towns that used to be thought of as rock-ribbed Republican towns in, in New England or on Long Island or in New, New Jersey, they're all monolithically Democrat now. And the final thing, I think, is that Christians were disappointed in, um, in what Republicans um, got for them. And I don't think this meant that they left the party by any means, but it, it, it meant that they they went about it with, with less enthusiasm. So what has happened now is that the Republicans, minus these rich people, the entrepreneurs, let's say, have become a much, much more socioeconomically modest party. And they are the party of the heartland. They are the party of 85% of the territory of the United States. But they don't control any of those let's call them, you know, like, like those circuit junctions where like right. the, the decisions really get made. And they're very, very far from the power system that I describe in this book, The Age of Entitlement. Yeah, they're, uh, they're very, very far from, let's say, the uh, engines of cultural production. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah. know it and, and, and feel it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask that question because uh, and I think you're right about the fusionism of Reagan Republicanism and the conservatives. You could throw some libertarians in there, but uh, that that's coming apart. Uh, I think a lot of conservatives don't understand why it's coming apart. Uh, corporate America will do what they see in their best interest, period. Uh, and, uh, you know, so part of what happened is they saw China as an enemy, but then overwhelmingly saw China as a market. And uh, just yeah. to take that as one example, and uh, and so now you have American corporations trimming their sales, changing their messages, even changing the maps and even their airport destinations in order not to offend the Chinese communists. Yes. So that that's not conservative, you know. Uh, any any way you look at it, then you have Silicon Valley and all this. It's tied to a radical uh, progressive moral uh, regime. Which, by the way, turns on itself. So, I mean, you, you, all, the, the CEOs of uh, Facebook and Twitter and Google are under attack by their own employees uh, because they can't <laughs> they can't stay on the the progressive edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the the election's going to, going to define reality politically in one sense. But we're in for a long process in this country of defining what it means uh, for America to be a constitutional republic. And uh, your book helps us to, uh, to think about what's at stake. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, I hope we'll talk again. God bless you, sir.
A conversation is not only an event, morally speaking, it's a privilege. It's always a privilege to be able to talk to someone and have an exchange of ideas. Whenever you put two minds in a room or two minds in a conversation, well, incredible things can happen. And the best kinds of conversations, the ones I enjoy the most, are the conversations that are about big ideas that are actually uh, risk-taking to get particular and uh, to point to historic examples, to try to understand history. I appreciate the fact that Christopher Caldwell says he's written a narrative, and a narrative means story, but that helps us to understand time. History itself is, by definition, narrative in form. This happened, and then that happened, and this is what these things mean. Over time, we should get better at the story. That's a, that's a part of the, uh, the discipline of history, yes. It's also a part of uh, intelligent Christian conversation. We want to be always attentive to trying to understand how we can go back and tell that narrative, tell that story better. The events from the 1960s are just explosive in the American mind. For that matter, even Western Europe, where 1968 also was explosive with riots and university unrest and political revolution. Yes, yeah, so, so the 60s on both sides of the Atlantic, but speaking as an American here in the United States, the 60s were the groundbreaking, explosive decade that set the tone for just about everything we're talking about right now. And at least a part of the conversation today helps us to understand that even though that's so, folks in the 1960s didn't want to see it uh, and often denied that these consequences could come about or even would become imaginable. But we're living in a time in which those things that we were told weren't imaginable in the 1960s have become actual. And, uh, and as I tried to make clear in the conversation today, uh, that's a process that's ongoing. Uh, there are others getting in line uh, to make their argument that the civil rights explosion uh, now must include them and, uh, and their group identity and their political movement as well. Now, this is contested territory, but there are some moral urgencies that are just really important to understand. When you go back into America in the 1960s, the reality is that uh, legal segregation in so many parts of the United States and institutionalized racism in so many parts of the United States simply had to be addressed. There was a vast national consensus that, uh, that correction had to happen. And, uh, and that brought about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But there was also at that time a moral urgency that, uh, that got directed in very different ways over the course of successive decades with second wave feminism and, uh, and other movements, uh, including, of course, what became known as the LGBTQ movement coming along in line and institution by institution in American society and, and court decision by court decision. Uh, there's been an expansion, a vast expansion without the American people in many ways having much of a voice even in what would take place in the courts and uh, not to mention in the arenas of uh, cultural production, such as higher education. So a book like this is an argument. I, I think uh, Christopher Caldwell was a little offended by the fact I called it an argument. But if you are publishing a book, if you author a book and put it out before the public, it's an argument, even if it, by the way, is a, is a fictionalized novel. It still is, in some sense, an argument. Some would say, well, it's a story. Yes, but a story is an argument. And we as Christians understand that in a very powerful way. There is no story that is not at base some kind of argument. It's a privilege to be able to have a conversation that sometimes even risks argumentation over issues that are really important. And Christopher Caldwell is a very influential writer in the world today. 
I'm glad I had the conversation with him. I'm glad we had the conversation in public. And as I always say, the best conversations are those that go on. And that means not only the conversations that go on between two people, but sometimes it's an act of Christian intellectual virtue that the conversations go on inside our own heads. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'll find more than a hundred further conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab, Thinking in Public. Thanks again to my guest, Christopher Caldwell, for joining with me today. I hope you'll join me again. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.